Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club, the podcast dedicated to the life and legacy of Dr. Clarence Gonstead. I've been traveling for the last few weeks and attending a number of seminars, but today I'm back and I want to follow up on our previous conversation about communication by discussing something that I think is one of the biggest challenges, not just facing Gonstead chiropractors, but really all doctors. We live in an age where nearly every person in America has libraries worth of information literally at their fingertips, and yet people in general are becoming less knowledgeable than ever before. How do we educate people who believe they already know it all when we can hardly compete for their attention long enough to even get a few minutes of serious thought? I have a few specific examples, so stick with me and we'll discuss this and more as we talk about combating ignorance in the age of information overload. A little while back, my daughter, who was eight, asked me what kind of phone I had when I was a kid. I chuckled, of course, and told her that I didn't have a phone when I was a kid. I had to use Nana's phone. Oh, she said, what kind of phone did Nana have? Well, it was a big yellow rectangle that hung on the wall with the longest cord I had ever seen, and I would get myself tangled up in it while she was talking to people. Confused, my daughter said, what's a cord, and how did you get on the internet? I told her I didn't have internet till I was in college, and then it hit me. That was only 20 years ago, and we've gone from no internet to what we have today. And if you're anything like me, you are totally reliant on it. Even for people twice my age, it's as if the dark ages of no internet never even existed, and we rely entirely on the computer brain we keep in our pocket. Is it fair to say that some among us, among us are actually too reliant on it? Before the internet, it was believed that access to information was the major limiting factor that kept us from becoming smarter as a society. As information has become more available, there's no doubt we are becoming dumber as a society. At the very least, we're becoming less informed because we lack the capacity to discern fact from fiction. Additionally, we've never addressed the lack of character and integrity in our society that leads some to see this information explosion as an opportunity to use intentional deception for their own personal gain. We all know this, of course, but many of our patients do not, especially when it has to do with health and human function. Unfortunately, the deception is not just from two-bit thugs who want to make a buck or even rogue reporters who want to make a name for themselves. It's not even from these egomaniacal chiropractors who want to make a name for themselves, even though they have no diagnosis skills, no adjusting skills, and they clearly lack even a basic understanding of biomechanics. No, now the deception is now coming from places we have always taken for granted as trusted and reliable. I first started working on this particular episode last March, but due to the condition with COVID, I decided the timing was bad, so I would just wait and hold it for a bit. I never thought we'd be entering November with so little change in our living environment. Who would have guessed in March we'd be wearing masks in November? Especially when you consider over 100 years of research demonstrating that masks don't stop virus spread. You may not know this, but according to the book, The Great Influenza by John M. Barry, an excellent book by the way, and my favorite book on the subject, it happens to be a pet interest of mine. He says that the city of San Francisco relied heavily on masks to prevent the spread of the flu during the pandemic. The flu pandemic occurred in two waves, with the first wave being a light disease that conferred immunity. The second wave was the one that was deadly. No city in the U.S. was hit harder by the second wave than the city of San Francisco. Even then, they knew that masks can't stop the spread of a virus. But I digress. Nonetheless, I decided now is a good time to present this information anyway, 
and to address how we can be one source of information in a world filled with misinformation. Back when the lockdown was beginning in March, I got an email from one of my patients who happens to be an RN. She has six children and has often been disillusioned by the medical establishment's blatant disregard for science. The email she sent was written by a medical doctor who was blasting the CDC for what he claimed was incorrect and irresponsible reporting of flu deaths. I then noticed that the doctor's name was Kenneth Stoller, MD. This got my attention because not only do I know who Kenneth Stoller is, but I've even had a conversation with him on the phone. So I have some insight behind his views. I can tell you that he hates it when politicians pretend to be doctors. I'm sure we can probably all agree with that. He's someone who puts his patient's health above all else, including politics, and he can't stand when politicians begin dictating health care like they've been doing in California, where he's from, especially when it's perpetrated by a pediatrician in political office like Richard Pan. He has nothing good to say about Richard Pan, but especially his lack of medical ethics. So, in this article, written by Kenneth Stoller, he's attacking the CDC's annual count of flu deaths. Ever since COVID came on the scene, people have been comparing COVID deaths to flu deaths, with many of them concluding that the flu kills more people than COVID. It actually didn't take very long for people to just start calling it a new flu or the Kung flu. The name's clever, but totally inaccurate. According to Kenneth Stoller, this comparison is incorrect, and it isn't even close because the flu kills virtually no one. I know. Big statement, right? Well, stick with me and see what Dr. Stoller has to say about this. For some background, the CDC combines flu deaths and pneumonia deaths into one stat, and they're the only ones in the world who do this. Their justification is that flu and pneumonia are often difficult to differentiate, and some people with the flu will ultimately die of pneumonia, but it's difficult for them to sometimes determine the actual cause of death. As Dr. Stoller points out, people who take a proton pump inhibitor for acid reflux are at a higher risk of developing community-acquired pneumonia, but nobody has ever suggested combining the deaths into one single stat. That's because the motive behind the flu-pneumonia connection is far more sinister, but we'll get that We'll get to that in just a second. The way the CDC calculates their number is that they start with 60,000 deaths from flu and pneumonia combined. If you then ask them how many are from the flu alone, they simply divide the number in half and say 30,000. But is there any evidence to back this up? According to Dr. Stoller, the number of people who died last year with a confirmed case of the flu as their primary and only cause of death was a staggering 19 people. It's estimated that the number might be as high as 292 people but that's a far cry from 30,000. That means that 0.000834% of the population will die from the flu. That's four zeros behind the decimal point. According to the Cochrane Collaboration, your risk of getting the flu in any given year is 2%. That means roughly 7 million people will get the flu. That's a lot of sickness. We better develop a vaccine. Sound familiar? If we plug in those same numbers, it means that if you get the flu, your risk of death is 0.00417%. That translates into one death for every 23,972 cases of the flu. Remember, that's at the higher number of 292 deaths. If we only consider the 19 confirmed deaths, then we have one death for every 368,421 cases of the flu. Now, compare that to the CDC number of 30,000 deaths, which translates into one death for every 233 cases. On its face, the claim that there is one death for every 233 cases of the flu seems patently absurd, but let's investigate further. The first question the skeptic will usually ask is, 
Why would they do that? What motive do they have? Well, Dr. Stoller addresses this as well, and he points out that you can't very well convince people to get their annual flu shot if you tell them that 292 people out of 350 million died of the flu last year. Relatively speaking, 30,000 is still a small number out of 350 million. But 292 takes it from rare to virtually impossible. The CDC's advisory council has 12 members, nearly all of whom personally own patents on vaccines, including the flu vaccine. Conflict of interest much. But if the medical establishment should be known for anything these days, it should probably be their complete lack of anything that even remotely resembles ethics. Just consider their covert war on informed consent. Do they even care about their patients? Not enough to tell them the truth before they agree to treatment. Again, the skeptical asks, do you really think they would do all of this just for money? Yes, because it isn't just money. It's obscene amounts of money, and that much money produces a ton of power with it. Medical domination has been the name of the game from the very beginning, because this is Rockefeller's medicine, the same man who was famous for saying that competition is a sin. It's not a sin in a capitalist society. It's actually a necessary requirement. But it is a sin in a crony capitalist society. I don't want to get political, but it is necessary to understand why and how this is happening. Crony capitalism is defined as, quote, an economic system in which individuals and businesses with political connections and influence are favored, as through tax breaks, grants, and government assistance, in ways seen as suppressing open competition in a free market. Phrases like, too big to fail, are indicative of crony capitalism. We've seen it with the banks, and soon it will be the airlines. Big tech has been involved in crony capitalism since the beginning. But what about the healthcare industry? Remember when, in 1986, all vaccine manufacturers refused to create any more vaccines because the liability was too high? They all recognized that the benefits were low and the risks were high. The government chose to indemnify them so they could make vaccines for profit without any risk or oversight. That is the dictionary definition of crony capitalism. I point this out because this is an issue at the heart of the matter. Most of the people who despise capitalism and call it unfair, and they think it favors the rich, they don't realize that they've never lived in a capitalistic society. It's been crony capitalism all along. Nowhere is this more evident than in healthcare, and that's what I want to focus on. For the medical establishment, it's all about profit. And health is merely a happy accident. So getting back to the numbers. I did a little thought experiment. According to the numbers, COVID has killed 238,000 people in the U.S., allegedly. Still, I know people who have died of COVID, and I certainly know of people who know of people who died of COVID. If the flu kills 30,000 per year, and I've been alive for 45 years, then in my lifetime, 1.35 million Americans have died of the flu. How come I can't think of a single person that I know who's ever died of the flu? I don't even know of anyone who knew someone who died of the flu. Never in my life have I even heard it reported on the news that someone I don't know died of the flu. How is that possible if I already know people who died of COVID at the mere 200,000 mark? Something doesn't add up. While I don't really have time to do this topic justice, let's take it a little bit deeper and look at what the science has to say. Dr. Thomas Cowan, in his blog, recently pointed to several recent research studies that question the long-held dogma that humans are sterile on the inside and every virus present is indicative of disease, and, more importantly, they question the dogma that nature is out to get us. Instead, these researchers talk about exosomes. Exosomes are extracellular vesicles, 
are generated from the tissues as a way of detoxifying and communicating. When a tissue is exposed to a certain toxin, especially one that breaks down the genetic material, the tissue packages this broken down genetic material into vesicles so they can be excreted from the body. It is these exosomes that were originally called viruses and labeled by Pasteur as the cause of disease. In reality, they are important for not only eliminating the cause of disease, but on their way out, they communicate with other tissues to alert them to the presence of a toxin. Just consider how much harm has potentially been done by the medical community in an attempt to fight these so-called viruses instead of allowing them to remove defective DNA from the body. Defective DNA leads to cancer. Is that why cancer rates have shot up in the last 150 years? The point is this. Our patients have been educated and even brainwashed into thinking that their bodies are stupid, they are programmed to fail, and their only hope is medical intervention. Even in the light of modern scientific research that says it's not the case, they are going to be very resistant toward letting go of the dogma they have been programmed to believe since birth. And the medical establishment in charge? Well, they're going to be absolutely unwilling to allow anyone to see the world in any way that doesn't keep them at the top of the food chain and painted in the best possible light. This is the hill we have to climb. But as you can see, the science is on the side of the inborn wisdom of the body, and it's even more amazing than we've ever been allowed to believe. Six months ago, it seemed everyone who was skeptical of the COVID data was comparing it to the flu. Even now I hear people saying it's basically the flu. It actually has far more in common with the common cold, which actually is a coronavirus and not an influenza virus, but I digress. Nonetheless, I found myself wondering out loud to my wife, why aren't chiropractors so quick to compare the death rate to the flu when there's a far more damaging statistic that could really wake the world up to what we're really dealing with? In fact, it's a stat that almost every chiropractor knows. What is the third leading cause of death in the United States? You know what it is, don't you? Iatrogenesis. It translates from the Greek to roughly brought forth by the healer. It is defined as inadvertent and preventable induction of disease or complications by the medical treatment or procedures of a physician or surgeon. Conservative estimates place the death rate from iatrogenesis at 250,000 deaths per year. That translates into 20,833 deaths per month. That's comparable to the reported death rate for COVID. Nobody has ever suggested that we shut down hospitals in order to save lives, even though we did shut down the economy. I think we could argue that no cause of death is more preventable than iatrogenic death, since it's literally in the definition. Perhaps, instead of making comparisons between COVID and the flu, which is a false comparison anyway, we should be comparing death from COVID to iatrogenic disease. If you want to make a stronger point, the leading cause of death is heart disease, with 655,000 381 deaths per year, or 54,615 deaths per month. Nobody has ever suggested shutting down the fast food restaurants or even cutting sugar out of the diet, which would also cut cancer deaths, the second leading cause of death. Presumably, it's because we are a free society and you have the right to kill yourself with bad decisions just so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Can we honestly say that 655,381 deaths from cardiovascular disease doesn't hurt anybody else? Maybe we need to start thinking rationally for ourselves instead of letting the medical establishment do our thinking for us. Interestingly, the first four months of 2020 had a lower death rate than all preceding years. This was officially attributed to social distancing and sanitary measures. However, it is conveniently ignored that there was a dramatic decrease in iatrogenesis as most private doctor's offices were closed. This is further confirmed by a spike in the death rate that occurred during the month of March. The reason was because people with minor symptoms like headaches and fever 
were forced to go to the ER instead of the primary doctor in a private office. This led to an increase in MRSA infections and other such infections, consequently leading to a spike in deaths. In his groundbreaking book, Confessions of a Medical Heretic, Dr. Robert Mendelson describes how, on two separate occasions, the entire medical community in Israel went on strike. During both occasions, the death rate in Israel dropped to nearly zero. Once the doctors went back to work, the death rate shot right back up to where it was prior to the strike. Obviously, this is anecdotal, but I've tried to find data that might provide insight. Not surprisingly, no data can be found. We know the death rate decreased in the first four months of this year, but there isn't enough data that I can find to determine why. Instead, there's simply a narrative, and that's really my point. As Dr. Cowan says, the problem with science is that it isn't very scientific. I believe this is the primary communication barrier that we will face in our times. If you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, then you know that with a little bit of knowledge, confidence increases dramatically, and this leads to a place of high confidence but low knowledge, a place that has been dubbed Mount Stupid. Have you ever gotten an envelope in the mail and it looks like a check? When you open it to find out how much it's for, you discover it's actually an ad? They're using your desire to get paid to trick you into actually paying them? It seems to me that this trick is more commonplace than we realize, as most science is actually marketing in disguise. Like, don't you know that this naturally occurring compound is the secret to weight loss that nobody wants you to know about? Now that you know the science, how can you not buy our product? But alas, you don't know the science. You don't actually know anything. And you probably don't even know how to research it, except maybe a Google search, which is very much not scientific research. But who cares? Because you know science, so you know it's true. And that's how you end up perched at the top of Mount Stupid. Unfortunately, many of our patients live there, but it isn't their fault, even though it is our problem. Again, if you know the Dunning-Kruger effect, then you know that the decrease in confidence that comes with just a little more knowledge is just as steep as it was on the way up. So the solution is to increase knowledge and push your patients off the ledge at the top of Mount Stupid. The problem with Mount Stupid is that it creates so much confidence that we become unwilling to gain more knowledge. The effect of the internet is that it's propelled people up to the top of Mount Stupid in a number of areas. The reason people have their health decline in spite of their best efforts is because of Mount Stupid. The reason people work more to make more but they have less money is because of Mount Stupid. The reason people vote for politicians who make their lives worse is also from Mount Stupid. In almost every facet of life, the effect of the internet has been to give us confidence, which we confuse for knowledge. The solution, as I've already said, is more knowledge. We need to educate the public in ways that they can then use the internet to verify. Unfortunately, most people have been trained to substitute expert opinion for actual knowledge. I remember when I was in high school, I was reading what an expert physicist had to say about Newton's theory. My instructor then said, he would be right if Newton actually said that, but Newton never said that. He then suggested to me that instead of reading what someone says Newton said, why don't you read what Newton actually said? It seems so obvious, but I've never forgotten that lesson. When someone makes an argument to refute a claim, I want to read for myself what the original claim and the explanation is. I've been amazed at how often I found that the author either didn't understand or simply misrepresented the original claim. Of course, every explanation makes sense until you hear the other side of the story. If nothing else, I've learned to take nothing for granted. When you think of how many people allow news reporters to tell them what was said and what they should think about it, without ever verifying for themselves what was actually said, then it's easy to see how people end up on top of Mount Stupid with no idea that it's even happening. When I was practicing, this was something that really bothered me because I felt that patient education was an important part of my responsibility as a doctor. 
Over my 20 years of practice, I found that the process of patient education was becoming more and more difficult. I think the most difficult one for me was when a patient responded by saying, well, not everyone believes what you do. Believes? Everything I said was science backed up by research. I'm not looking to make religious converts here, and this certainly isn't a cult. I'm trying to teach science. How do you do that when patients want to equate science knowledge with a belief system? Again, I think this is one of our biggest challenges that we will face in the years to come. You might have noticed that I said when I practiced. It's true. I'm no longer practicing. I officially quit seeing patients last September, and since the beginning of October, I'm now an instructor in the Chiropractic Sciences Division at Life University. As such, I'm committed to training the next generation in the best way that I know how. A large part of that is anticipating difficulties and challenges that they will face and working to prepare them before they get there. This is my natural mentality anyway, but the experience has already put me in a position to have many conversations with individual students to see where their mind and their understanding is. I am hopeful that this will translate into better questions from me and a better podcast overall. This certainly won't be the last time we discuss this topic, as I'm sure we will go there in the future with future guests. But I want you to understand my rationale and my thinking behind why I think it's important to go there with our patients. They will present challenges to communication, no doubt. But we must find ways to overcome these obstacles for everyone's benefit. The challenge is to get them off of Mount Stupid by pushing them forward with more knowledge. But first, we must always push ourselves forward to ensure that we do not get stuck on Mount Stupid ourselves. I should mention that when you fall off of Mount Stupid with more knowledge, you'll arrive at the point of least confidence. Unfortunately, this is where a lot of chiropractors are when they begin in practice. I know this might be hard to swallow, but embrace it. This is the least amount of confidence you'll ever have. Just keep adding knowledge. Don't make assumptions or jump to conclusions, but add knowledge. Investigate, ask better questions, and read what the actual experts have to say. As your knowledge increases, so will your confidence. But don't neglect your patients either. If you push them off Mount Stupid, then they will find themselves in what is called the Valley of Despair. They will lose all of their confidence, even though they have a little more knowledge. What they need at that point is your encouragement and for you to keep feeding them with more knowledge. That's a huge responsibility and one that I've never taken for granted and would never take advantage of. I hope you feel the same way. Obviously, this isn't the end of the conversation, but rather, I hope it's the beginning of one and one that I can help you to navigate. Next week, we'll be back with another guest as we leave this topic of communication behind us. Even though we're leaving it behind, I hope that it won't be forgotten. I hope that as we continue to learn, that you'll always be thinking about how best to communicate ideas and principles to your patients. As always, I hope you found this to be helpful, and I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.